Hi, you're listening to Legacy And, a podcast by Art360 Foundation, which is a UK-based charity supporting artists and those caring for artists' work with the creation of archives. This is a podcast hosted by me, Ellie Porter, and co-edited and produced by George Genn. In this episode, I'm speaking to Claire Barclay, who is a Glasgow-based artist. Her practice centres around large-scale, site-specific installation with a specific focus on craft processes and also the juxtaposition of materials, including everything from brass, soap, fabric, engine grease, soot and suede. So, hi Claire, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so pleased that we're able to have this conversation We've been working together, I think since 2019 now, through the Art360 Scotland project, thinking about your archive, supporting you with the development of a legacy strategy. And it's been particularly fascinating to follow your journey through this process because your approach to the archive is unconventional and I think will really benefit other artists listening who would like to, I guess, flip traditions on their head and approach archiving from a perspective that suits and benefits their practice. So I really want to begin just by delving straight in and asking you what archiving has been like for you and also if working on your archive has in any way changed your perception of your own practice. I think as an artist you are constantly kind of moving on to the next thing and there's an element of almost kind of um, embarrassment about things that you've just made. <laughs> you know, you're slightly uneasy with it. You're sometimes, especially when you make large scale installations, and they're they're completed in situ. So you don't know what the work is going to be until you're putting it right out there. You know, literally, you're working right up to the moment where the exhibition opens to the public. So you've not had this luxury of having sort of time to reflect on the work you know it's just out there bam and you you have to just like deal with it the way it is and the reaction to it so I think you know when because I've worked like that I've been very kind of I suppose like eager to sort of move on to the the next project and I and this process really made me realize how I just hadn't looked back and when I did start to look back and and you know right right to you know formative experiences of art school, you realize that there are these strong threads that run through the practice and and you know some things that are not surprising, but other things that really are surprising, you know certain things that you just don't realize are recurring. I, I suppose I feel like I owe it to all the people that have provided these opportunities that I've trusted in my practice who have supported me that actually you know I really need to acknowledge the worth of all all these different these different projects so and and quite often the projects that you were you were most uneasy about that actually they become the more interesting projects you know they were maybe unresolved they were maybe quite like seemed sort of out of sync with your work or something but actually these some these were sometimes the works that you know push your practice on or challenge you or challenge audiences and it sounds as though there's a lot of people present in your archive and actually what you've done through archiving is make their contributions more visible 
Yeah, and I, I think it's about you being able to be in control of what you want to focus on, what questions you want to ask. So there's something really nice and and intimate and personal about being able to create your own or start your own archive. You know, I'd really recommend that everybody does this because I think it's, it's thought-provoking and it's also a boost to your sort of confidence around your work, actually. It's hugely empowering to take ownership of this process as an artist. And one of our key missions, really, at Art360 is to provide as much free resource as possible for artists to do this and to feel that they're supported in organising and taking ownership of their life's work. And I think, you know, we, we all spend a lot of time talking to fellow artists or curators or other people around about, about your practice, but it's never really documented. Those discussions are lost. And so I suppose this is the opportunity to consolidate some of that so that artists give their own voice to their work. And not in that kind of forced on the spot, tell us about the exhibition kind of a way, but actually in a way that's genuine and sort of truthful, looking back over of, of decades of, of work. There's no doubt that the pace of installing an exhibition is very intense. And by necessity, it's orientated around timeframes and deadlines And those deadlines are actually counter to the archiving process, which requires a lot of deep thought, a lot of walking away and coming back to the archive. I actually think archiving is a slowing down of time as we experience it in the contemporary world. Yeah, yeah. And especially in the age of uh, encountering artwork digitally and through, you know, the, the sort of competitiveness of social media, that it's almost like there needs to be certain things that are championing, encouraging contemplation and people's capacity for forming personal individual responses to art. And as you say, that sort of slowing down um, and observing and 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 getting up close to work, you know, and, and also experiencing something within a context. You know, there are so many wonderful things about being able to encounter work digitally, but maybe now more than ever, the gallery experience is, is so important in being able to emphasise the sort of experiencing of art rather than sort of owning of it. And I also mean owning in terms of social media and we sort of are gathering things, say on say Pinterest, where you sort of end up with these sort of juxtapositions of things that will never sit beside one another in the real world. So it mm. becomes various a sort of very aesthetic way of looking at everything and sort of curated through through an aesthetic uh, series of guidelines, as opposed to that sort of serendipity of just falling into that situation of walking into a gallery not knowing what you're going to encounter and having to just make some relationship with what you what mm. you encounter there this purely aesthetic way of perceiving the world can really be quite limited and i think there's definitely become this conflation between digital reality and physical reality. So the way technology is designed really eliminates that mediation between ourselves and the device. We just don't feel the keys on our phone anymore. 
the mechanisms and the interface is pretty much invisible. And so we're just kind of sucked into this virtual realm. I think it's easy to forget that the artwork you're looking at on screen is just a piece of the work. It's a version. It's just one representation. It's it's not necessarily the work itself. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on the immediacy that technology provides in terms of access to artwork. There are definitely pros and cons. There are brilliant photographers. There are absolute experts in documenting artists' work. And this is critical. It's absolutely essential. But I just wonder more generally whether we're, we're in a phase now where a quite passive engagement with images is encouraged in what I believe is now the corporate space of the internet. And that really does affect the way that people look at art. Yeah, and I think the same goes for archives as well, because, you know, there's something just so wonderful and joyous and intriguing about accessing an archive, that sort of journey that you go through discovering things and the surprises and, you know, that the the tactility of actually holding, you know, like printed photographs and, and, and letters and documents and little doodles and sketches and things that sort of tend to be in these, in, in these kinds of um, collections. And that sort of sense of rummaging and that you come across things that you didn't expect to find. So you, you maybe go with some kind of intention and then um, you don't necessarily find what you're looking for, but you find these other things along the way. That's maybe relevant to the way that I make work and also maybe the way that people encounter the work as well. And so, yeah, so you, I think we don't want to lose that the sort of magical quality of rummaging in an archive. I completely agree. I think people will always want to rummage and technology offers brilliant opportunities. We wouldn't be able to do this podcast without technology. We've been able to continue the Art360 programme remotely and have conversations throughout this period of time because of all the amazing tech available. So I think it's important to value that. But at the same time, you know, the digital realm can't be a substitute or really replicate the evocative qualities of physical objects people still collect vinyl people want hard copy books libraries are still there bookshops are still popular I think this is really important to recognize yeah I I mean I suppose the archive is interesting because you know I'm sure for just about everybody who's engaging with the art 360 archive projects you know, they will end up with this successful marriage of, of the two, you know, the, the kind of physical and the, the digital, um, and that hopefully they can kind of complement one another. I, I suppose it's like how it, it's, it's that sort of message of like not giving up on the importance of experiencing work at first hand. And also that it's it's almost like it you know that it's going to become like a kind of workout for us as we get more and more sort of detached from the you know sort of enter these virtual spaces and get more and more detached from the physical our physical environments that it's almost like we need this workout to um, hone those really sophisticated um, and surprisingly nuanced sensory abilities that we have you know people come into space to see an installation that I've made you know they maybe don't expect that they will actually be able to 
detect the smell of the metal or be able to distinguish between faux and real leather or, you know, these sort of very nuanced things. And quite often then they do have to reach out in order to be able to make those informed choices. I, I hope we're not losing we're not losing that because we, you know I think this whole return to interest um, in crafting material is coming is a backlash against that obviously and there is just something very joyous about both making and experiencing uh, you know encountering objects that have been made that have that kind of hand handmade quality. I also wanted to ask you Claire if there's anything that you discovered or rediscovered in the archive that came as a surprise oh god well actually I mean the, the thing that comes to mind mostly is a is a sort of quite a negative thing in a way that I, I've forgotten people's names you know my memory is not what it used to be and I and I then I, I felt this this terrible kind of sense of loss and I was like going searching to find that information and so in a way, it was it was a sort of negative thing in terms of a sense of loss of, you know, remembering important things like, like the names of people that you've worked with in the past. But then in a way, it kind of, kind of comes around to being a positive thing by, you know, it's this reconnecting with um, with different places and different communities and networks and, and individuals that, you know, you realise have informed, you know, informed the work. Um, you know, because we're, you know, many of us are really lucky as artists to be able to have travelled, you know, to really far-flung places and be able to kind of respond to, you know, the situations that you encounter there. You know, the projects don't just kind of end. They, you sort of take something from one project and, and it's sort of woven into the next. So, you know, the development of somebody's practices, you know, has its roots in all these different experiences and, you know, and a lot of the time you're there as somebody who is naive. You know, you don't just go and land in Tasmania and then make a piece of work that is informed about the situation you find there. You, so my work, therefore, is a, a process that I'm going through in order to get to know something. Um, and so it's an, a kind of investigation and that it is going to be an investigation from uh, quite a naive perspective but what you're bringing with it with you is your practice and so it's a sort of marriage of the parameters that the context provides and and you and how you use your practice in order to try to kind of negotiate all these unknowns. I also wondered if you'd come across things from art school in your archive and what was that like? Yeah, I, I, I mean, like partly I was thinking, gosh, I've really not changed. <laughs> there are things, you know, that are, are are really just there from the very beginning. And I think what was I, what the reason that I had mentioned it, um, you know, the process is actually quite confidence building. You've realised a lot of the things that happen in these formative years. You know, as an art student, for instance. That's sort of where you understand how you can create form out of uh, who you are, you know, as a person, as a, you know, as an individual. So, you know, your work is kind of being shaped by your personality and your interests, you know, at that very early stage. So there's something quite encouraging, you know, because 
I'm I'm always just so amazed how you know how how people are how people's work is so individual. You know, yes, lots of people's work is you know similar to other people, but you know, the sense of of you know anybody having a, an art practice and that they have this very kind of individual style, for want of a better word, that that emerges. I think that's exactly why it's really so important that artists feel they have trust with the archivists and the curators and the photographers that are accessing what's essentially their personal space. The archive is really individual and mirrors artist practice in that sense. But, you know, wrapped up in all of this material that exists in the archive are people's work, but also their lives. I think that's why this these projects are so great, because... What, what you're encouraging is that artists start that process. So instead of waiting till somebody no, is no longer with us and then having the job of archiving things, but when everything becomes very, very precious and, um, and, and an archivist is, you know, very reluctant to play around with things or edit things out or that aren't important, you know, so the artist can kind of point to what, you know, what they think is, is kind of important or, or interesting you know, they can be much less precious with, with the material. You know, I suppose I, I sort of felt at the beginning, you know, oh gosh, that's very kind of serious and grown up and, you know, I'll need to approach it in a particular way. But now I feel like I've kind of taken ownership of it and I can kind of mould it into, you know, whatever I want it to be. And I think that's something that, you know, it would be great to see everybody doing really. Definitely. At Art360, you know, we really want to encourage artists to lead on their own archives, if possible, and wherever possible within their lifetimes. And that's a core part of our mission. And I think there's a significant opportunity within the archive to shape and to delineate how you want your work to be positioned and received in the future. There's still a lot of work to be done more widely in achieving the investment and the resources to allow artists to really be able to do this in reality and to actually find the time to do it. And Claire, I also wanted to ask you about some more specific projects and in particular your exhibition Yield Point, which was at Tramway in Glasgow in 2017, because I'm aware that work was temporary and it was site-specific and I just wondered how that work exists now. Yeah, so I suppose, first of all, it can't exist because it was made in relation to the space. So there were things that were suspended from the beams and attached to them and sort of became kind of in integrated into the actual space or that sort of related to the physical characteristics of, of the space and the scale, the huge scale of the of, of uh, Tramway's gallery too. And on the other hand, yes, it does exist in different portions that then are crammed into storage facilities and and cupboards around the place and then also certain substances that have to be kind of cleaned away the engine oil or the the suit gets kind of cleaned up there's a sort of process of of cleaning the work doesn't exist but then there are these elements that have the potential to be re-shown in a different place in a different way or that they could be reimagined you know you could have them in different combinations so sometimes works don't exist at all either you know discarded or recycled and then there are other works that the elements are stored I very rarely re-show things 
because I'm always wanting to make new work for a given situation? Yeah, those questions with the conservators are just so important. And I guess the key questions they're trying to get to is what elements of the work can be modified before it really stops becoming the work. So I imagine that, you know, with this particular piece, with this installation, you're trying to get to a point where there's a set of guidelines or a manual almost for restaging the work in the future without I guess compromising its integrity but there's also like I'm not sort of precious about you know the need to keep that exact engine oil so new engine oil can be poured into these metal troughs that were um, part of the tramway show quite quite a lot of time galleries are asking for this as well Um, it brings up this issue about how quite often there's a need for me to work with the gallery in order to sort of create a list of things that are okay to do. So there's another work, the installation called Trappings that was made for the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art. And they acquired that work. And so they've made this beautiful storage crates and really sophisticated ways of storing this work in order that it can be brought back out. On one or two occasions that has happened, which is the ideal scenario because then it it re-inhabits the spaces that it was made for. And, and so things like the wool strands that were that had to be cut off the work, we've now got specifications of the kind of wool and the uh, leeway there can be in terms of choosing the right colour or, 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 or brand or type of wool. So there's a little bit of flexibility there um, in terms of them remaking that work. But I'm not really purist about it. And and in a way, there's something really nice about the idea that somebody else would go through that process because there's something very eccentric about the kinds of actions that artists do in order to make their work. You know, they're often really eccentric. They develop really eccentric things along the way. Um, You know, whether it's that particular meticulous kind of brush stroke, if you're, you know, a a painter or whatever. But, um, you know, in my case with this work it was this kind of winding this wool around the structure so you have to kind of create your own sense of you know tensioning the wool and you have you kind of end up going up and down on tops of stools and chairs and things in a particular almost sort of like some kind of strange dance that you're doing and you're literally doing it thousands of times um back and forward and back and forward so In a way, there's something quite interesting about somebody else doing that and somebody else kind of going through that same experience that you had to to make something, you know, these kind of eccentric actions. And it seems as well that your work isn't standalone. What you're seeing in the exhibition space doesn't actually exist in isolation, but it's part of a much more extended an ongoing process which continues after the work has been dismantled and placed in an archive in, in different forms. And I guess that leads me on to ask about the work Diabolical Lifting, which is a, a work that I particularly love. Um, it was a commission in 2012 for Abbotsford, which is the home of the Scottish 18th century playwright Sir Walter Scott. And I particularly wanted to ask you about the preparation for that work and also the role of research. Yeah, because that was one that does come out of an engagement with, with an archive. So while Abbotsford, Walter Scott's home, was being renovated, 
the whole of his library was being looked after off-site and I was able to access that and through speaking with the um, the conservator there she happened to bring my attention to the fact that a large portion of the the books were kind of dedicated to witchcraft and demonology and I was thinking that was kind of quite um, surprising and then realizing that Scott had written um, a non-fiction uh, book about well, witchcraft and demonology, that's what it's titled. And, um, and, and so then I started to look at some of the books uh, that were part, made up part of that, um, that, that collection within his library. And there were incredible things there, like the transcripts of the Salem witch trials and, and books on magic spells and, you know, all sorts of things around sort of Rosicrucian um ideologies and so it it I, yeah so that it was something that I hadn't intended to be you know making work about but it just that was sort of what kind of captured my attention and so um, the work kind of evolved from from that experience. I do think it's very interesting that Sir Walter Scott had a scientific interest in witchcraft and demonology given that you know, he was a romantic writer and he was writing during that 18th century period when everything was very dramatised and had this sense of fiction within it, even if it was a piece of historical writing. I think your work too is is really responsive to the environment of Abbotsford and it carries this sense of ambiguity. And as you've described in the past to me, this tension between the seductive and the unnerving. So the work is suspended in space literally and it's almost like a mobile so if you were to walk underneath it the objects which are suspended would move with your body I think as well the um, use of material you have organic material and industrial together so kind of machine brass and antlers I, I think the way that those materials are suspended that it makes them seem as if they're relics and they create this mood of the past, this sense of history that's very non-linear and is quite dramatic. And also it did strike me that the title Diabolical Lifting for a contemporary audience may have this kind of compelling quality, which is also quite playful and obviously refers to levitation, which to many depending on what you believe, might seem like a fantastical notion, but it just really struck me that, you know, that title actually kind of um, altered the way that I was conceiving the work and added this quite humorous dimension to it. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because it, I suppose it's that sort of like bringing disparate things together that aren't usually connected and then create these kind of new hybrid objects from that kind of merging of, of things. So the work kind of suggests a whole range of things, but you can't kind of place it. So you, you can't place it in any specific context. So it kind of triggers your curiosity and gets you to sort of contemplate what's going on. But I think it's also about portraying a, a sort of moment, but also the things that seem to continue to resonate. So, you know, that idea of superstition, or the idea of persecution of women, or the idea of aspects of abuse that seem to sort of percolate 
into society and that are then backed up by basically unfounded superstitious kind of thinking it seems really poignant today we can connect with things in the past because they still resonate today because of human nature not really advancing as much as we might have hoped by now yeah I agree. and that drama I mean like well just like Abbotsford is just full of these objects that are, that are just like dripping with drama you know they're so imbued with drama you know whether it's the key that was thrown into the lock where Mary Queen of Scots was imprisoned or the Rob Roy's dagger or you know all these things that probably aren't even authentic and but he he collected all these things that may or may not have been authentic and they were they're they're plastered all over the walls so the whole place is so imbued with all these narratives and then what was really interesting was that because the house has been renovated everything was off-site uh, in in this kind of big storage facility and and so you had things like the king's actual sword next to 20 electric bar heaters that had been you know used in the house by the the kind of descendants of the family that were still living in one wing so everything was kept and so there's this sort of like absurdity about about that like I'm so so interested in how you can make objects that haven't got any historical value Um, they don't have that kind of cultural association and yet through their form and their material properties you can trigger all that kind of drama and these potential narratives because people are so keen to project onto things project onto objects um and they're so able to do it Mm. Uh, and I think that's in a way that's kind of what what I get a kick out of like as an artist it's like you know like playing around with that the potential drama of objects and their ability to suggest scenarios and functions when they don't actually even have one but you know and also the way then people anthropomorphize them as well so they animate them and you know they become active yeah I do think there's something really odd and quite funny about what appears to be a timeless human attraction to drama and I don't think that's ever really changed throughout history I think in today's society we're still looking and seeking out that drama as a kind of escape from the mundane every day we're just looking for it in different places and in different formats and I guess Walter Scott in that 18th century context there's a lot of mystery and escapism bound up in these relics and you know their authenticity is questionable and unlikely I guess but you know I think they're almost a symbol of what drama look like for a certain echelon of society at that time so Claire I've really really enjoyed speaking to you as always and before we end our conversation I wanted to ask you if there's anything that you'd like to reflect upon that we haven't discussed regarding your archive and if there's anything that you'd like to share with those that are looking to start this archiving process themselves it's about communicating what you know what your practice is and the fact that it, it you know it's not just about exhibitions it's about um, engagement with people you know the work that's happened with with different groups with, with working collaboration with fabricators and you know, I haven't even mentioned you know working with um, organizations like Artlink or with educational contexts and you know so 
you know, it, I suppose it, it's it's for you to sort of decide what goes in there as opposed to leaving it up to other people. Yeah, so it's just opened up a whole breadth of, sort of possibilities. And, you know, and I think it's going to be really interesting to have the conversations with other artists that have been through the process because, you know, everyone's approached it in such different, diverse ways. Mm. Um, and so hopefully as things evolve, you know, artists then have a whole range of, of um, examples of, of ways in which they could approach their archive that seem relevant to them. Well, Claire, thank you so much for speaking to me. It's been really lovely to have this conversation and in general, just to work with you through the Art360 Scotland programme. It's been so interesting to see how you've approached your archive and I'm really looking forward to seeing how it evolves in future. And of course, you've got films um, with Marissa Keating coming up, which will be documenting your processes in the studio. And you're also, I know, collating boxes of material for people to potentially handle in the future. Um, So yeah, watch this space, I guess. You've been listening to Legacy And, an Art360 Foundation podcast with me, Ellie Porter, and co-edited and produced by George Genn. At Art360 Foundation, we rely on charitable donations and grants to continue the work that we do to support artists and their estates with the process of archiving and legacy planning. We really, really appreciate any support you're able to offer us. So if you would like to donate, you can visit our website at art360foundation.org.uk. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you join us next time.